Welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we are continuing through our study of First and Second Samuel. Now, if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, then you heard the news last night that Phase 4 of Marvel has officially been announced. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, their slew over the next three years, movies and TV shows, was officially rolled out to the great joy and excitement of all those around the world, um, to see the sequels that we all wanted to see and the next movies coming up, but then also some new movies coming up. And Marvel is just, they're just doing something right now that just not many other people are doing. Uh, um, Avengers Endgame officially passed Avatar this weekend as the highest grossing movie all time. Wow, I got a clap, wow, thank you, there we go. Um, there that is. Um, so officially, it's the highest grossing movie of all time. There's been no other movie that's ever made more money than this one movie. Um, and so they're doing something. Marvel is doing something that's tapping into some human experience that is giving Disney a whole lot of money. And so I couldn't help but wonder, what is it in me that gets so excited? I mean, I was finishing up the sermon last night, and then Kevin Feige, the CEO of Marvel, gets up to announce all this, and I just lost all concentration. So I went over to watch the San Diego Comic-Con to see live what was the announcements as they were upcoming. So what is it in me that gets so excited? What is it in other people that they get so excited? And why has everyone giving, just throwing their money at Disney right now um, through Marvel Cinematic Universe? And one of the things I couldn't help but notice is that in every single one of these stories, there's this kind of grand narrative. There's this grand, obviously, superhero. There's this story running through of these characters that are larger than life and these stories that are larger than life. And there's aliens and there's uh, you know, enhanced humans and there's robot suits and there's these uh, vibranium shields. There's all these things. And we love to see it. Here, take my $14. I don't care. I'll go. I want to watch this movie. And what is it? I think, if I had to put my finger on it, I think that there's something within us that wants to connect ourselves to a greater story. And we get to see storytelling at its finest, I think, um, in my humble yet accurate opinion, um, that Marvel Cinematic Universe is just doing as good as anybody right now. They are telling stories so well, these grand stories that people want to connect themselves to. They want to be a part of. There's something innate inside of every single human being that wants to be a part of a bigger story. And friends, one of the things that I am concerned about for, I guess, myself a little bit, but then also just for the church as a whole, is I worry that we look at these stories out there and we're trying to grab something to connect ourselves to and we set aside the grand story that God has called us into a story that's greater than any movie, any sports team, anything out there, God is saying, hey, I've got a story for you and you won't believe how incredible it is. What exactly is that story? I think that our chapter this morning in 2 Samuel 19 gives us a glimpse at just what it is God is calling us into and what story he has commissioned us for. So we'll be in 2 Samuel 19 this morning. So if you grab your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you grab one of the ones next to you, it's on page 279 and 280, uh, one of the Bibles on the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. We'll be in 2 Samuel 19. Uh, we'll be in verses 
uh, 8 and a half, 8b through 43. So the last half of 8 through the end of the chapter. So quick recap to where we are so far. This guy named David became the king of Israel. He's the second king in Israel's history. Things were going well, and then David turned away from God. He had an affair, and then he murdered um, that woman's husband, trying to cover it up. Well, then all these consequences begin to roll out. Most notably, David's son rises up to overthrow David. So David's son, this guy named Absalom, spends four years, gets all of this um, uh, favor within the uh, country of Israel, and then he overthrows David. And so David has to leave Israel. He goes into exile. So David's son has overthrown him. David takes an army and goes off into the wilderness. And so that's where we've been. The last four chapters was this conflict between Absalom and David, David and his son. And what we saw last week, finally, was that great battle between the two, and Absalom is killed, and then David then no longer has anything standing in his way. So the enemy is defeated, the rebellion is squashed, and now the door is cleared again for David to head back to Jerusalem and retake the throne. And so this is where we are now in uh, chapter 19. So we'll read verses, last half of verse 8 all the way through verse 43. The meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his own tent. And people throughout all the tribes of Israel were arguing among themselves, saying, the king rescued us from the grasp of our enemies. And David saved us from the grasp of the Philistines. But now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, the man we anointed over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about restoring the king? King David sent word to the priests Zadok and Abiathar, Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to restore the king to his palace? The talk of all Israel has reached the king at his house. You're my brothers, my flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to restore the king? And tell Amasa, aren't you my flesh and blood? May God punish me and do so severely if you don't become commander of my army from now on instead of Joab. So David won over all the men of Judah and they unanimously sent word to the king, come back you and all your servants. Then the king returned. When he arrived at the Jordan, Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and escort him across the Jordan. Now Shimei, son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men from Benjamin with him. Ziba, an attendant from the house of Saul with his 15 sons and 20 servants, also rushed down to the Jordan ahead of the king. They forded the Jordan to bring the king's household across and do whatever the king desired. Now, when Shimei, son of Gerah, crossed the Jordan, he fell face down before the king and said to him, My lord, don't hold me guilty, and don't remember your servant's wrongdoing on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king not take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. But look, today I am the first one of the entire house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, son of Zerui, asked, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. David answered, sons of Zerui, do we agree on anything? Have you become my adversary today? Should any man be killed in Israel today? Am I not aware that today I'm king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you will not die. Then the king gave him his oath. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He'd not taken care of his feet, trimmed his mustache, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? 
My Lord, the king, he replied, my servant Ziba betrayed me. Actually, your servant said, I'll saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride, ride it and go with the king for your servant is lame. But Ziba slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. So do whatever you think is best. For my grandfather's entire family deserves death from my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. So what further right do I have to keep on making appeals to the king? The king said to him, why keep on speaking about these matters of yours? I hereby declare you and Ziba are to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, instead, since my lord, the king has come to his palace safely, let Ziba take it all. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim and accompanied the king to the Jordan River to see him off at the Jordan. Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years old. And since he was a very wealthy man, he had provided for the needs of the king while he stayed in Mahinim. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and I'll provide for you at my side in Jerusalem. Barzillai replied to the king, how many years of my life are left that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I'm now 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voice of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the king? Since your servant is only going with the king a little way across the Jordan, why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return so that I may die in my own city near the tomb of my father and mother. But here's your servant, Chimham. Let him cross over with my Lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you. The king replied, Chimham will cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you, and whatever you desire from me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed. The king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and Barzillai returned to his home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went with him. All the troops of Judah and half of Israel escorted the king. Suddenly, all the men of Israel came to the king, and they asked him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, take you away secretly and transport the king and his own household across the Jordan, along with all of David's men? All the men of Judah responded to the men of Israel, Because the king is our relative. Why does this make you angry? Have we ever eaten anything of the king's or been honored at all? The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, well, We have ten shares in the king. So we have a greater claim to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Weren't you the first to speak of restoring the king? But the words of the men of Judah were harsher than those of the men of Israel. So we have this story now on the heels of exile, on the heels of this great battle. The kingdom is restored and David goes back to Jerusalem. But it's an interesting chapter, right? This should be a happy chapter. The enemy's defeated, David's going back to Jerusalem, but it begins and ends with this strange feeling. It begins and ends with a kingdom that's still divided. Right? What, what we see in this chapter in particular, we see a kingdom divided, a king restored, and we see his people respond. There's kind of three kind of markers where we're walking through today. A kingdom divided, a king restored, and then his people respond. We see first a king, a kingdom that's still divided. This is what begins in verses 8 through 15. They're trying to figure out, do we bring David back? Because uh, you remember everybody, we, we kind of anointed his son to kill him 
and now he's coming back. What's he gonna do when he comes back? So they're trying to figure out, do we welcome David back or not? What is he going to do? David senses this and reaches out to him and goes, listen, guys, bring me back. No one's going to die. And so they bring him back, anoint him king yet again. And so it feels like, okay, well, maybe then things are gonna move forward. But then it ends in verses 40 through 43 with this similar kind of frustration. You have these two divided areas, the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And they're arguing over who David likes the most. That's the substance of their argument. Because as David was coming back, all of Judah's troops, the southern kingdom, these were two tribes, were coming with David, but only half of Israel's troops. You notice that? It's, they were coming back in verse 30 or in verse 40. It was only half of Israel. So Israel comes, and they're like, hey, how come all of Judah came and only half of us? Right? It's like the sibling that looks over at their brother or sister and goes, hey, he got more than me. Do you like him more? How come I don't have more? I like ice cream. Give me more ice cream. And they begin to bicker and argue. And the one that got less ice cream stands up and goes, yeah, I may have less ice cream, but guess what? I'm bigger than you are. So there that is. Another one's like, oh yeah, well, you're mom. And that's in essence, really the conversation here in 40 through 43. How come all of Judah goes and only half of Israel? What's Israel's then response? Israel goes in verse 43, oh, well, we have 10 shares in the king. What that means is they have 10 of the 12 tribes were there in Israel. But Judah, the Southern kingdom just had two. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You may have had all your troops, but guess what? We're bigger than you are. And they go back and forth and it ends that the words of the men of Judah were harsher than those of the men of Israel. It, it didn't settle, this didn't resolve. It wasn't like that ended the conversation. It continued to get worse and worse. They continued to be frustrated. And you saw that even though the kingdom was restored, the kingdom was still divided. And you see this fault line that exists here in the nation of Israel that will ultimately be exposed after David's son Solomon and after Solomon's children come and then the kingdom will be completely divided and it will be two separate kingdoms. So the fault line is laid here. But why does the chapter begin and end with the kingdom that's divided? Right, this is a story of restoration. This is a story of the king coming back. Well, to understand why it begins and ends that way, we have to step back and understand what the kingdom of God is even being talked about in First and Second Samuel at all. What is God doing with his kingdom, with this nation, Israel, in First and Second Samuel? And what God is doing, we kind of step back from the tree and start to look at the forest. What we see in First and Second Samuel is God, for the very first time in redemptive history, is creating his kingdom tangibly, earthy, very real here on earth. His kingdom, his people, governed by his covenant and chosen king, living under his way, his kingdom made visible. It's the very first time it's happened. And one of the things that we see happen in First and Second Samuel is it gets to this point in Second Samuel 7 where God then makes this promise. He makes this covenant that says, David, listen, there's going to be a son of yours, this descendant that will come and he's gonna establish my kingdom forever. There's gonna be an eternal and everlasting kingdom that he will bring in. And that verse, 2 Samuel 7, 14, that's one of the pillars that the entire Bible is rested on, is built on. And so from there on, throughout the Old Testament, there's always that question, who is gonna be this son of David? And could this now be the kingdom that's going to last forever? So here's a moment in 2 Samuel 19 where it feels like maybe God's anointed king and the guy that killed Goliath, he's coming back out of exile, back to Jerusalem. Is this now the kingdom? 
Is this the eternal, everlasting kingdom that God had promised? And the author is wanting to make very clear, no, this is not that kingdom. There is still a better kingdom that is to come. This kingdom is still divided. This is not yet what God has done. And so when you then step back from 1 and 2 Samuel and then begin to look at the Bible as a whole, you see the stage that God is setting through this story and through this idea of his kingdom coming down on earth in a real, tangible, visible, and earthy way. God's kingdom set up by his king governing and ruling his people. And it's setting the stage for this better kingdom that is to come, a kingdom that one day Jesus will bring in, this son of David. Right, you read through the book of the Gospel of Matthew, and you know one phrase that Jesus says over and over and over again? It feels kind of strange, but he says over and over again, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean by that? Well, you have to understand First and Second Samuel to understand it. Jesus is saying, I am ushering in that kingdom that's been promised. It's finally here. And so he ushers in this better kingdom. The, the author here in 2 Samuel 19 is saying, hey, this isn't the kingdom. There's still a better kingdom yet to come. Even though the king's restored, this kingdom's still divided. Keep looking, turn the page to be continued. We're not there yet. So that's what we see first within this kingdom that's divided. But second, we see a king restored, right? So even though the kingdom has divided, David is restored back to his throne. But it's the same thing the author is doing. David is coming back to Jerusalem from exile. He's bringing the kingdom back. He is God's chosen, anointed, and covenant king. But while he's restored to the throne, at this point, we're very clear that David is incredibly flawed. And he's not the king to bring in that kingdom. And so while we get to 19 and see the kingdom still divided, we're still looking for a better kingdom. We get to David being restored and we go, no, he's not the king. There's still a better king that's to come. Let's keep looking for this son of David that's going to be coming. And that's one of the phrases that's described as Jesus in the New Testament. He's described Jesus as the son of David. I was Googling something the other day and I said, why was Jesus? And I was gonna ask another question, but when you, know, you go on Google and it autofills what the question is gonna be based on the popularity of people that ask. And I typed in, why was Jesus? And the second most popular question asked was, why was Jesus called the son of David? And again, if you don't know first and second Samuel, you don't know that answer. But when you do, you see that this promise in 2 Samuel 7, this promise of this descendant from David, this son of David, this king that would come, this better king that would bring a better kingdom, he will one day come. When Jesus shows up on the scene, then it makes sense why he goes, the kingdom of God is now at hand for the son of David has come. And so all of this, in first, in, in, here in 2 Samuel 19, both this kingdom and this king, they're saying, hey, it's still flawed. This isn't it. There's a better kingdom and a better king. And so the question that I want us to pose this morning and ask, so if that's in fact true, if there's this kingdom that's here and this king that's being uh, restored, how then should his people respond? How should a people respond to a king? Right, we see it laid out here. There's three different examples in 2 Samuel 19 of these individuals who come. Right? If you notice it, the, the writer of this passage lays it out very clearly. Verse 16 begins with Shimei and goes all the way then through 23. 24, then Mephibosheth, then he gets his section. And then in 31, Barzillai, and he gets his nine verses. And there are these three individuals 
that all interact with the king in different ways. And so as this kingdom is still divided, the king though is restored, how then do his people respond? And we've talked some about Shimei in the past, Mephibosheth, um, we spent a good bit of time on, so I won't spend a ton of time on them. Right? Shimei was the guy that when David was walking out of exile, he was in Saul's family and he was throwing stones and curses at David as they passed. So that's why whenever uh, he comes and asks for forgiveness, Abishai in verse 21 is like, hey, shouldn't he die for this? Right, that whole family, Joab, Abishai, right, all the sons of Zeruiah, they just wanna kill everybody. I don't know if you've noticed that in 2 Samuel. Their solution to everything is like, hey, let's just go and we'll just remove his head. That'll make him stop talking. And here in 21, he's like, he should be put to death. And David's like, no, you don't get it. There is no one who's going to die today. This is a day of victory. And so David tells him in 23, you will not die. So Shimei is pardoned. Now he's a snake and we see consequences come for his actions in 1 Kings. But here David goes, no, today you will not die. Then you get to Mephibosheth, perhaps my favorite name in 2 Samuel. I've gotten really good at saying it. I don't know if you've noticed that, Mephibosheth. I say it so fast. And Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. He was the one who was dropped. His legs were broken, so he's lame. He couldn't, he couldn't care for himself. So Ziba was um, a servant that looked after him. Now, David invited Mephibosheth to his table. He showed them incredible kindness in 2 Samuel 9, perhaps my favorite chapter in the book of 2 Samuel. And so David was surprised when he went into exile because he was told Mephibosheth went to go serve Absalom. And David's like, you serious, Mephibosheth? Come on, man, I showed you grace. You were Saul's grandson. I should have killed you. And instead, I gave you a seat at my table. Come on, are you serious? And now you're gonna turn your back? That's what the last we heard of him. But now we see him coming and Mephibosheth goes, no, 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 my servant, Ziba, the one who's looking after me, I told him, hey, I'm ready to go. I'm gonna get on a horse. Let's go to David. And Ziba left. He left me and I couldn't care for myself. I couldn't get there on my own. And then Ziba slandered me to you. He lied to you, told you that I went to go serve Absalom. And Mephibosheth like, look at me, man. I hadn't cared, right? You see the details in verse 24. So that he had not taken care of his feet. He hadn't trimmed his mustache and he had not washed his clothes. He's living like a true millennial, right? He had, a, he had his mustache grown out, hadn't washed his clothes for years. And he, was, he said, listen, David, I am, I am here. And I've been mourning you since the day that you left. I, my allegiance is to the king. And David's like, okay, that makes more sense. Yes, Mephibosheth, and you are pardoned as well. The person, though, that I want us to zoom in on here, really in the last half, is looking at this guy named Barzillai, because he's a little bit more of a kind of uh, side character. He's over on the fringes, right? We saw him back in chapter 17 when David was in exile. He'd gotten into the wilderness. David and all of his army, they were tired. They were exhausted. They're in the desert. And we see these three men come who were wealthy, and they provided for them. They gave them food. They uh, helped support, sustain, and further than that kingdom. And so Barzillai in particular is highlighted here. And he's told that uh, he comes again to meet the king. And there's a handful of details we notice about him here in chapter 19. First, it starts off and it says that in verse 32, he was a very old man. He was 80 years old. And he was a very wealthy man. And because of that, he had provided for the needs of the king while he stayed in the Mahinam, in the wilderness, back in chapter 17. Now, the other thing we see is that Barzillai had come from Rogalim and come down to the Jordan River. 
Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, 9th century BC Israel geography, but that's about 20 miles. So this 80-year-old man walked 20 miles to go and see the king across the Jordan. And while he was there, he was very old, he was 80, he was very wealthy, and he stayed there to be able to help the king get across, to see him back over into uh, Jerusalem. And so what we see about Barzillai is that he followed the king. And he followed the king when it was costly. He followed the king when it was unsafe. And he followed the king without expectation. He followed the king when it was costly. He followed the king when it was unsafe. And he followed the king without expectation. Right, first we see it was costly for him. I mean, first of all, because he walked. He walked 20 miles 80 years old, walked 20 miles. It was in the hill country is where he was as well. So it wasn't a straight shot. You know, this was Claremont of Israel. He's walking through the gym of the hills, 20 miles to get there. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I walk slash ran the other day, 2.2 miles. It felt like one of my lungs exploded. And so for this guy, an 80 year old guy who's walking 20 miles to go and see David, it was costly. That's not easy. And he got there and he goes, David, my king, I would walk a thousand miles, and I would walk a thousand more just to be the man who walked a thousand miles then fell down at your door. And all of Israel busted out in song. And so he came and he put his life to the side and he said, I want to come and see my king. I'm going to follow him. It's going to cost me, but not only physically, but also financially. Right, we saw that he was a man of great wealth and at a time when David and the troops were in exile, he came and he used his wealth to be able to support the king. And he went and followed him there when it was costly. He was a man of wealth and he was a good steward of it. He used it to sustain, support, and further the kingdom of God. But not only was it costly for him, it was also unsafe. It was unsafe for him to follow the king. When Barzillai came and he supported David, David was in exile. David was an enemy to, at that point now, the anointed king of Absalom. And he had the odds stacked against him. David had a smaller army. They were tired. They were exhausted. They were hungry. And Barzillai goes, hey, I'm going to publicly be aligning myself with David. I'm supporting him. It was unsafe because if Absalom, in fact, squashes David and defeats David, you know what Absalom's gonna do next? He's gonna go and kill every single person that aligned himself with David just to make sure there isn't any further rebellion. And so had David been defeated, Barzillai put his life and reputation out on the line. He said, no, even when it's unsafe, I'm going to be here next to you because he wasn't concerned about being on the right side of history. Barzillai was concerned about being the right side of the king. He said, I don't care if it doesn't look good. I don't care that we're in exile. He's the king. And so I will follow him. He gave his money. He put his reputation and safety on the line. He risked everything. Why? Because he knew the king and he was going to follow him. Now you see the way then that David responds to that support here in chapter 19. David sees him and what does David say? Hey, come to Jerusalem and I'll give you a seat at my table and give you everything that you could want. This was it. This was, this was the great gesture. He could have the greatest wealth that any man in his possession could have. Not only wealth, but even greater than he already had, but now also position and power and authority there in the palace at Jerusalem. Because you've supported me, Barzillai, here's what you can get. And how does he respond? 
says, no thanks. Listen, I'm old. I can't even like taste things anymore. I can't, I can't hear the sound of men or women singing. Listen, I'm just gonna go back home. I'm not gonna go to Jerusalem. I'd be a burden for you, my Lord. You, you just go. I don't need to go. And Barzillai turned it down. And we see that the service that he gave the king, as he followed the king, he did it without expectation. He did it without any strings. And this is so different from so many people in First and Second Samuel. Have you noticed all the characters that try to, to cozy up next to David and support him so that they can advance their political careers? They come to try to do nice things so that they can get spots in his cabinet. And they are showing their generosity, their kindness, and their commitment to the king for their own gain. We see this over and over and over again. But then refreshingly, here's this guy who comes and goes, I'm gonna follow the king. It's going to be costly. It's going to be unsafe, but I don't want anything in return for it. I'm following the king. And that's a reward in and of itself. And so with this chapter, what we see that both of these books, they're pointing us forward to a better kingdom and a better king. And here we see in particular Barzillai, the way that he then responded to that king, the way that he related to that king. And so if this book is thrusting us forward to look at the kingdom that Jesus is bringing and looking at the king that Jesus is, then we can't help but ask ourselves, how do we respond to that king? Is it like Barzillai? Do we go and follow him if it's costly, unsafe, and without expectation? Or do we want things in return? Right. I, I, this week was reading through this as I started thinking about the way Barzillai responded, started thinking about the way that I should relate to the king and God's kingdom coming here on earth. I just can't help but feel unsettled with myself, with the way in which I live my life, asking God, do I really believe this? Am I living my life as though you are a king who's coming to establish his kingdom and you're calling me to be a part of it? Or am I just working to try to make a comfortable and safe life for myself here? And so for us, and I, I hear that and I see then what God is calling me into and I begin to feel, man, I'm just so tired of a comfortable and safe Christianity. God, would you give us something more? Would you give us the stuff that you're talking about? God, give us what it is you're calling us into. Help me to see. God, help us to see this story that you are calling us into. And so I don't know about you, but I read this chapter and I, say the, I see the way that Barzillai followed the king and I go, man, I'm not like that, but I want to be. I want to follow the king when it's costly. I want to be able to say, hey, God, everything that I have, it's yours. God, in fact, I know that it's already yours. I don't own any of the stuff that I have. You've given me, I'm a steward of everything that I have. I think one of the great lies that Satan has convinced people in the Western hemisphere of is that you own the stuff that you have. You do not own it, God does. And God has placed you for a moment as a steward over it. And the question is, what kind of steward will you be? Would we be good stewards of everything that we have? And so, yes, this means money but it means so much more than money. It's in regards to everything that we have, our lives, our jobs, our kids. Your kids are not yours. They're God's. You've got them for a little while. And the question is, are you going to be a good steward of them? 
right? I, I feel this. I feel that we don't quite get this. As I was preaching at a summer camp a, a while ago, and in the middle of it, it was a youth camp. And in the middle of it, one of the students came forward and said, I, I feel God calling me to lifelong missions, to give my life, to go overseas, to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it. What an incredible response, an incredible testimony. And I remember talking to some of the youth leaders and you know what the first response was from the youth leader? Well, I wonder what their parents are gonna think. And I go, listen, I, I understand that. But for our first response to be, oh man, we're gonna be upset if our children leave to take the gospel around the world. Then friends, we do not understand what God is doing and who our children are. They are not ours, they are God's. And the greatest thing that we could do is to raise them up for them to be agents of change, to take this kingdom wherever they may be. If that's around the world or if it's their job, no matter where it may be. But for us understanding that all the things we have, we hold them with open hands saying, God, this is yours. And while I have it, I wanna be a good steward of it. And so let me not just hold on to everything and try to just create a life that's safe and comfortable. But God, you have called me to a life that is going to be costly. You've not said to take up all my comfort and call and follow you. Jesus, you told me to pick up my cross and follow you. And so help me to live a life that's costly. Help me to see my money. Help me to see my kids. Goodness, help me to see my kitchen table as a steward, to be a steward of what it is you're doing. Help me to use the home that you have me in, the neighborhood that you have me in, the job that you've given me that begins to shape our entire perspective as we see, God, I am a steward of what it is you've given me and help me to use it to further your kingdom. So that whenever you come back, I could say, no, God, I followed you even when it was costly and even when it was, uh, was a sacrifice. And one, one of my favorite definitions of sacrifice, somebody put it this way, the sacrifice is when you give up something you love for something that you love even more. And so as we look at our stuff, we look at our possessions, we look at our money, we look at our children, we look at how clean our house might be, and we begin to see, oh, I'm the steward of this. Let me give this up. We give it up, not begrudgingly or not because, oh, God's told me I have to do this. But we begin to do it because we go, no, we do this because Jesus is better than this stuff. And I wanna follow him. And so I wanna follow the king when it's costly. I wanna follow the king when it's unsafe. Whenever it feels like the culture is changing rapidly. Look, in 2 Samuel 18 and 19, the culture shifted really quick from pro-David to then four years later, Absalom was working support. And then in four years, he then overthrew David. The culture shifted drastically. But do you know what Barzillai said? As he looked and he observed the culture shifting away from what it is God had called the nation to be, Barzillai said, okay, the culture is completely shifted away, but you know what? I don't care because I'm following the king. And regardless of where the culture was going, he said, no, what has God said? And that's where I'm going to go. And I wanna continue to follow the king even when it's unsafe. And so in a country where the culture is shifting rapidly, there is going to be a temptation and a pull to want to try to water down and lessen what God has said so that we can try to maintain a good relationship with the culture because it might be unsafe for us in our jobs and our relationships. Goodness, maybe even in your families but may we respond like Barzillai and go, no, even if the culture has shifted, I wanna follow the king, even if it's unsafe. To go where the king is exiled and to align ourselves with him and to put ourselves even potentially in danger. To not be concerned about being on the right side of history, but being concerned about following the king. And so 
if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may hear, uh, what, so we're just supposed to follow blindly what it is we're supposed to go and do, whatever Jesus has said. And I can understand the hesitation that you might have. But let me, let me encourage you this. As you're on a journey of faith, trying to figure out exactly what this thing called Christianity is, let me encourage you to focus in, not first on what Jesus said, but focusing in on who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Because let me just tell you, the reality is, is if Jesus is who he said he is, then we need to listen to him. Honestly, there's a bit of where it doesn't even matter what he has to say if, it is, if he is who he says he is. If he's a guy who lived publicly in this ministry that said, hey, I'm gonna die and one day I'm gonna come back again, and then he did it, right? I don't know of anybody that's died and then resurrected. I've seen people who faked it. I've never seen anybody that's actually done it, except for this one man. He's one God. You look at all the religions. This is the only one who died but isn't still dead, right? All the other gods are dead. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Joseph Smith is dead, but Jesus is alive. And so pressing into that question, who is Jesus? Because if he is in fact the king, then we should go and we should follow and listen to what it is he has to say. And so I wanna follow the king when it's unsafe. But then I also wanna follow the king without expectation. I love that Barzillai came. He put his support on the line. He put himself on the line. And when David came and said, you can have it all, Barzillai said, I don't want it. I didn't do that to get this. I did it to follow you. I did it to be obedient. And so I wanna make sure that I'm not coming to Jesus because of what he can do for me. Right? I don't wanna come to him because I have some view of him as being this magic genie in a lamp, the Robin Williams kind, not the Will Smith kind this magic genie who can come and give me everything that I want. If I, if I just do the right things or say the right things or have enough faith, then he will give me everything that I want and desire. And Jesus becomes a means in which we can get what we want instead of getting Jesus himself. And this is the great error of the prosperity gospel, a false, false gospel that teaches that if you come to Jesus and if you follow him close enough, then he will make you rich and he will heal you of any sicknesses that you have and he'll make every day a Friday if you just come and you follow him. And friends, this is the opposite of what Christianity is because following Jesus, just so that you can be healthy and wealthy, it's like marrying somebody for their money. Jesus, I'm gonna follow you because of what you can give me. And we follow Jesus not because of the rewards that he might give us, but because he is a reward in and of himself. And so are we willing to follow him no matter where he might lead us or what it might cost us? Are we willing to publicly align ourselves with him, even if it might mean our reputations or even our jobs are put in jeopardy? Are we willing to follow him even though we might not see any reward on this side of heaven? Is our Christianity costly? Is following Jesus unsafe? Do we do it without expectation? Or do we want a king that is convenient and comfortable? A king that acts more like a life coach than a king, who's there when we need him to give us what it is that we want. And so I pray for myself and for our church that we would respond to our king like Brazil I did, seeing that God is calling us into this story this grand story to be a part of bringing his kingdom down on earth, just as it is in heaven. He's calling you to go and make new kingdom citizens, or as Jesus put it, to go and make disciples. That God is calling you into this story of bringing his everlasting king and his everlasting kingdom down into earth. And so the way that you live, the way that you treat your neighbor, 
the way that you treat people who are in need and who can't help themselves, the way that you parent, as you change diapers, everything, every aspect of your life falls underneath this umbrella of following God's king and bringing in his kingdom. Does that shape how it is that we see our life? And so praying that God would lift our eyes to see the amazing story that he's calling us to and that our lives would be given to the expansion of this better kingdom as we lift up and glorify this better king, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.